in the evenings I would like to do uh, to recite the mantra of the Prajnaparamita Sutra. Some of you know it. Uh, if you don't know it, just listen and then if you like you can join. <coughs> So this mantra, you can find it in the Heart Sutra, which is kind of the bouillon of the Prajnaparamita Sutras. And it is a part of what is called the second turning of the wheel. You could say in the first turning of the wheel, the Buddha gave a lot of stuff, lists and practices, and clarifications and then in, in the second turning of the wheel he took it all away he took the toys away all the toys he gave to his monks so he takes away your books and your mobile phone that's one thing <laughs> uh, but also he takes away what you think you have understood and what you think you have attained so he really pulls the rug under your feet. And uh, it is, uh, it is, it is the, it's, a, it's a push into the experience of groundlessness and not knowing. There's nothing to hold on to and there's nobody holding on to anything. So it's a kind of, Sometimes it can be a bit of a terrifying experience because it's like dying. <coughs> and this is what it's like experiencing the death process. It's like dying before you die. Because this process of that everything, what you think you are, will be taken away from you. This is going to happen in the death process, level by level. And uh, so the mantra is, uh, is, is it can be a, a way for some people to connect with that experience on a kind of symbolic way uh, with, with one's voice and tuning in into the energy of the mantra. So the mantra is Om Gate Gate Paragate Parasamgate Bodhisattva. Om Gate Gate Paragate Parasamgate Bodhisattva. What it means is, so Om. It's it's being said uh, in the in the Hindu teachings that Om is the sound of the universe. So it's like kind of the fundamental mantra. If we could, we would listen deeply. How does the universe sing? Then we would hear Om. And it's said to have uh, three, three, three syllables, which uh, represent the coming, the staying, and the going. Yeah? So that's the coming, the staying, and the going. And then, gata gata, go. Come on, go. The second gata, yeah. go beyond, go utterly beyond. So that's what gata gata, go, go, go beyond. 
Parasamgatte, Go utterly beyond. So this is the, the, the process of a deeper <coughs> and deeper letting go. Going beyond what? Going beyond self-centeredness. Going beyond the projection that there is an objective real world out there. And there is an objective real me in here which we need to defend. This fundamental dualistic split which is according to the Buddhist teachings, not only the Buddhist teachings, the cause for all our suffering, this fundamental dualistic split. There's an I here and there's an other objective other out there and then the trouble starts through grasping and rejecting. So in this mantra we are invited to go beyond these projections, both you know, the twofold emptiness, emptiness, the twofold emptiness. The non-existence of a solid real I and the non-existence of a solid real world out there. <coughs> Which does not mean that things don't exist. It's the discovery that this moment does not exist in the way it appears. It exists and it does not exist in the same way, in the same time. It exists and it does not exist. Like a rainbow is vividly appearing, but if you go close and you try to put it into your pocket or put it around your bed, you will, you will grasp into nothing. But uh, still, it vividly appears. <coughs> In other words, you take things less serious. You realize that you make the shit up. Shit is made up. So that's. Uh, and then bodhi soa means bodhi means awakening, <coughs> and soa means so be it. So you could some you could say it's like go, go, go beyond, go utterly beyond, and establish yourself there. Be there. R relax there. Relax there. Rest there go beyond. So in the, uh, when the Prashna Paramita, Prashna Paramita means the perfection of wisdom. And the perfection of wisdom refers to a, a, an experience of what I just shortly explained. So the experience of that there's neither a solid me here nor is there a solid world out there. So that experience, not as an intellectual idea, but as a real experience. No, with, with that experience, you actually become, become something which is called a stream-enterer, which is not the end, but uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a step to... to uh, to, to, 
to have let go of the idea that there is some solidity, solidity here, something solid, something real, and to really experience it. And definitely we can have glimpses of that. Or some, sometimes something which seemed to be so heavy and real kind of we see the insubstantiality. We, we see, wow, I make, I make this shit up. It is a projection. So this Prajna uh, Paramita, this experience of emptiness, is uh, in the Buddhist tradition very often symbolized as a, uh, as a female Buddha, as a goddess. Because out of that potentiality, everything arises and dissolves back into. Like a woman gives birth to a child. So when Prajnaparamita is symbolized, she is symbolized as this golden goddess sitting in a lotus. <coughs> and maybe some of you are familiar with the iconography of her. If not, just make something up. Yeah. So there's a lotus, and then there's this golden goddess sitting there, adorned with jewels. She has four arms, but you know, don't don't bother about that. <laughs> <laughs> two, two arms, we, we are we are not enough, because <laughs> she had to. Feed the baby, and you know it's it's so much to do for her. Um, so uh, play with this. I mean, uh, it's obvious that not everyone uh, it's not everyone's thing to uh, work with symbols like this and you know with iconography. But uh, you might be surprised if you kind of let go of your fear of ritual or tradition or something and just, you know, just play like a child would play with this. Um, what, is, uh, what is important is not so much that you have a, um, a, like a visual image, but it could be helpful if you have one, but if not, if it's just like maybe just <coughs> What is more important is that there is a sense of this powerful presence, female presence, the, the sense of the goddess, with, with, and she's <coughs> bathing you in, in that golden light of wisdom and compassion. So that golden light loves everything and in the same time sees that it does not exist. It does exist and it does not exist, yeah. like a rainbow. So she sees that things don't exist, how they appear, but that does not make that does not make her say, yeah, okay, there's nothing to love there, there's nothing to, you know, it's not like that. You love everything even more 
because you take it not as solid and real as it is. So we bathe in that experience. And uh, whatever you carry uh, in terms of isolation or you know, feeling a bit stuck or feeling alone, you know, this can happen in, in a retreat when we go a bit more inward. And uh, particular for, for those of you where silence in your family meant that there's something wrong. It can bring up this kind of feelings of, oh, what, what are they? Nobody's, you know, kind of, you can't reassure yourself that you're still connected and people still like you and they are not angry with you. So, so it's important that you recognize this kind of, um, feelings of isolation and feelings of I don't belong and uh, feelings of kind of fear and kind of looking for reassurance mm -hmm. and also if you are kind of if you like to be the funny guy you know, kind of and you try to connect with others like this and this is suddenly not available then it's like <gasps> help, help, I'm here <laughs> so it's like so, and sometimes this is uh, this can be quite uh, quite difficult. So, if you get to a place like this and you can't get out, then please connect yeah, with me or someone else. Yeah. <coughs> so you don't need to, you know, because in a retreat, uh, this kind of old conditioning or patterns they can become <coughs> amplified, and and then you feel it's real. It's real that nobody loves me and that I'm not part of this, and yeah. So then it's uh, and then it's qu this can be quite 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 often it can be easily dissolved by just talking with someone or asking someone for a massage or being touched or give you know ask someone to give you a hug or give a give a hug yourself. Uh, so. Uh, for that, uh, for that kind of conditioning, being in a silent retreat is not necessarily the most helpful thing, because it will kind of it can happen that in a silent retreat you isolate yourself more and more. Like, and then for others, it, it, some people are not connecting with what I'm saying. So, but it depends a bit on our on our, on our experience and the kind of silence we are familiar with, particularly in our, in our family. So Pajnapamita could be one, one way uh, to, uh, to feel, you know, to feel loved, to feel seen, to feel embraced. She's, she's also called the Great Mother. And uh, when we uh, when we relax into her presence, we can also imagine, uh, you know, with her presence comes the presence of our masters and teachers, male and female, mm -hmm. Buddhist and non-Buddhist. So they all kind of condense in 
in that and she becomes really like a, a radiant seva source. Uh, to give you a kind of a little story about how Tseva feels or how important it is as part also to encourage our intention to, to go into that direction. You know, the last five weeks I, I spent uh, almost every day in, 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 the, in the hospital with my mother, like four or five hours and uh, a big university hospital and you know, probably you can imagine the conditions there you know to not enough staff and the staff stressed and uh, and uh, not you know they can't, they hardly can manage what they are supposed to do you know so there's no space for you know some extra treatment and i notice how wonderful it is and I met and my mother met and we met some some nurses and some doctors who just had that quality of care of uh, of tseva and you can immediately feel it it's like and it's not that you know these nurses that they some of them they did something special but it, it's it's more it's more in their in their belly in their presence and it's like like wow there's someone who cares and someone who sees and someone who is a human being yeah. and uh, we, met, we met also two doctors like that yeah. I mean we met many doctors but uh, there were these two doctors who who, uh, who had that uh, that energy and it was so different to um, to talk with them and you know this nurturing healing quality there's something it's not that they took more time but the quality the time had a different quality with them and it was such a difference so uh, you know one of the doctors i immediately uh, ask him for his private phone number because finally I found someone I could talk with. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like a, a, an anchor, you know, wow, there's a human being here. <laughs> so, so and, and this is the most important uh, quality in the healing business. Yeah. It's not, you know, I mean, it's also good if they if they know their stuff, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's actually, uh, it's actually that. And then, the the most amazing uh, thing was um, this. Uh, you know, then then my mother she she got uh, she got released from the hospital, but she has to go back for chemo, and they have this unit where the people go to for the chemotherapy. And on our last day. We went there uh, just so that she gets to know it, and uh, and and then and then Nurse Teresa opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny that she had this, that name, Teresa. My mother, she immediately noticed. Oh, 
she said, oh, this is such a wonderful name. Isn't that the name of this Mother Teresa? And then, and then this nurse had that really this strong quality, this strong seva quality. Yeah? And also she had this quiet room and they were like, and it was all quite nice and, you know, and it was completely different planet kind of in the hospital. And, uh, and, then, and then I just observed the conversation she had with my mother. And she was really so nice and so caring, and she had time, and and it was so wonderful for my mother. And and then, in the end, uh, my mother said to her, "Ah, this was so so wonderful. I've understood everything you you said. I, I mean, she forgot everything after, <laughs> but she had the feeling that she had understood everything. And then, in the end, she said, "Oh, I think." I like to come back here. <laughs> and, and the nurse was like, she was really laughing because who wants to go back to Shemo? You know, it's the most horrible thing. But my mother wants to go back, back there because, uh, because of that, that woman. Yeah. So that's the quality of Seba. And uh, and uh, so there is the wisdom aspect in in the Prashnaparamita, but there is also the seva quality, the warmth. The care, the kindness, the great mother who nurtures us. So when we uh, when we um do this practice, maybe you can, I, I notice that some of you feel what I'm talking about. You can feel the presence of this nurse and you know how it is to meet people like that. So, so that's one way to, to, to get to know this quality and to appreciate it. So when we invite uh, the Prashna Paramita, the Great Mother. We can, uh, we can, um, we can relax into that quality. Okay, so let's. We will recite the mantra twenty-one time. Mm. Uh, but for before we, before I will start to recite the <coughs> mantra, you, we will uh, do some. Uh, meditation and relaxing into the presence. So as always you take a few moments to check in. You notice what you bring with you into this moment and how you are. And as part of that, you start to pay more attention to your own energy, to the sensations in your body.
down into your feet. So there's a shift from the head into the body, into the lifeness of the body. possible to release struggle and tension in the belly and the shoulders. space in front of you manifests spontaneously Prajnaparamita, the goddess in a lotus, golden color, smiling, radiant. The quality of Tseva, bathing your whole body from the toes to the top of your head. to relax into the golden wisdom light which is filling and touching every cell of your body. smile, you feel the smile in your heart, the loving gaze, which is shining even into your darkest places. Where your heart with yourself and others, where you feel ashamed, where you feel hurt, where you feel alone, where you are violent and addicted.
presence, love and wisdom of the Dalai Lama and the Kamapa. Inside the mantra, you just continue to bathe in her presence, returning to the body when you get distracted. Om Gata Gata Para Gata Para Sangata
Prajna Paramita, the Great Mother, radiant, blissful. Dissolving into that golden light which enters your body at your heart level. Your heart opens. And the golden light, the golden wisdom seva light, is filling your chest and your whole body, and you become like Prajna Paramita yourself. You are the goddess. You are the great mother, sitting in a lotus. radiating wisdom save our light the pores of your body through your hands through your eyes out into the mandala of your life, be a source of seva in the mandala of your life for yourself and others. And you could start with the people who particularly need your seva or waiting for your seva depending on your seva. And then also radiating into your past, into your presence, into your future. Feel the power of seva, the healing power of seva. and kindness of love. Which is unconditioned. And nothing is excluded. Just rest.
just the source of flavor. to open the window a bit? Oh, yeah. It's open there. Ah, it's open there, okay. It's open here. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can, can maybe you can take the curtain away. It felt like the room was closed. <laughs> selflessness and stuff like that. I just want to read uh, a story. If you can't bear it anymore here, then you can, you're free to leave. This is just a good night story. And uh, I want to um, Every night, uh, read a story uh, from uh, about uh, uh, some teachers. Um, the the choice is a bit subjective because they are all teachers who mean something for me. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, the reason for this is um, <coughs> uh, by describing and invoking the presence of these teachers, uh, to we might have the possibility to get yet another sense of what it means to embody seva. Uh, so maybe you have been in the presence of the Dalai Lama or. Now I have been in, in the presence of Teresa. Mm -hmm. she's, she's almost there. <laughs> uh, so by uh, like now I in, 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 I did invoke the presence of Teresa here, and some of you could feel her, and, and you know, something in us knows that quality, of course. So, I mean, in the same way, if I 
my intention to read these stories is to kind of invoke the presence of this uh, of these people, in particular their this uh, loving presence. And um, the danger with doing this is that uh, because sometimes this description uh, they are a bit over the top. Mm-hmm. Particularly if they come from Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then we make this, so I will start with a story uh, about Lama Yeshe. Uh, so, Sometimes the danger is then we make these uh, teachers into this kind of, you know, super hu- superhuman, superman, you know, superman, spiritual <laughs> superman. So we should always remind ourselves that they are humans just like us. And for sure, if we would spend time with them, we would see these qualities but we also s- would see their mistakes or they they are their non their non super superhumanness but just their ordinariness and of course sometimes when you meet a person like this and after you talk about that encounter you, you might have the tendency to Colour it out a bit, you know, make it a bit more bombastic than, than, than it is. Or then it would have been experienced by a modest Swedish person. <laughs> so, but still, I want to uh, um, tell the stories, but I don't want to uh, feed this kind of, wow, this, uh, this, you know enlightened ones and here I am and I've never had this kind of experience and uh, it's not like this we have this kind of experience if I would be American and I would talk about Teresa it would be a completely different story Mm -hmm. the, the, the words and the metaphors I would use and how I felt and how my mother was feeling and I mean I would like I would write a book about Teresa. <laughs> Since I'm German, you know, I keep it down. I make it you know, I don't I don't blow it up into something. I, I just I rather underplay it. Can I tell something from Lincoln? Um, His holiness was teaching and I yeah. was there and a lot of other people. And after the teaching, Robert Thorman had a a talk. And he has been close to his holiness for many, many years, as Mm. I understand. And he was talking about his holiness like a friend. Mm. And it it was so lovely the way he explained it. So I really felt (laughs) Mm -hmm. what you're Mm. talking about now. So even his holiness regarded the highest of... Yes, uh, he also goes to toilet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so, this is uh, a story from uh, Glenn Moulin, who is a, a teacher, a translator, particularly uh, he wrote and translated some tantric uh, texts and teachings. He's Canadian. 
and it was published in the Mandala magazine, uh, 95. So this, uh, this article starts a bit uh, with a bit of information about Lama Yeshe, so you can place him. So Lama Tupen Yeshe, uh, he was born 35 and died 84. Began teaching, began teaching Western students in <coughs> India and Nepal in the late 60s and early 70s. This led him to establish the foundation for the preservation of the Mayana tradition, FPMT, in 1975 with Lama Sopa Rinpoche, the organization's current spiritual director. So the FPMT, some of you have heard about this network of centers. It's where I, uh, where I have my spiritual home, where I received my trainings, where I was a monk. And uh, yeah, it's also why I, in the first place, came to Göteborg more than 10 years ago. Canadian Glenn Mullin studied Buddha Dharma in India in the 70s. He describes his experience meeting with Lama Yesha. Buddhism uses the simile of a blue lotus to represent events of extraordinary beauty, wonder and magic. The blue lotus appears but rarely and always as an omen of great enlightenment activity, of a turning point in human civilization when someone of incomparable spiritual genius appears and inspires mankind to break free from its habitual patterns of movement and stretch upward to new horizons of experience. When Lama Yeshe walked this earth, blue lotus flowers blossomed everywhere. <laughs> you see? <laughs> Do you think a Swedish person would write this sentence? <laughs> When Lama Yesha walked this earth, blue lotus flowers blossomed everywhere. I mean, I can connect with that. I have, I mean, I, did, I have never met Lama, uh, Lama Yesha, you know, but when I see Lama Sopa moving and touching people and connecting with people and guiding people, uh, you know, I could describe it as, you know, with with each activity there is a lotus. Yeah. I first met him in 1972. It was a warm October, October morning in Dharamsala and I had been studying meditation in the Tibetan library for several months. Word went out that, the great, that a great Tibetan Lama from Nepal was in town and that Kyabje Trijang Rinpoche, the Dalai Lama's junior tutor, had asked him to give a talk on Dharma to Western students. Fifty or so of us, the entire Western student body in Dharamsala at the time, waited in the teaching room for him to arrive. The door opened, and we beheld a small, elf-like creature standing there, a wide and somewhat mischievous smile lighting up his face, his eyes twinkling like the first evening star. 
I say he was physically small, but it took some years of knowing him to decide on the matter. That first day it was impossible to tell. One moment he seemed incredibly tiny, and the next to completely fill the doorway. I had the impression that he was looking exclusively at me, but later learned that each of us had the same sense of being the exclusive focus of his attention. This is amazing. And this is quite common, that, that experience. And he began to move. It wasn't a walk, really, because his feet didn't seem to be in action. <laughs> It was somewhere between a shuffle and a glide, carrying him across the room to the teaching throne. He sat down, looked at us again, and began to chant the Muni Mantra. Tayata Om Gate Gate Paragat No Om Muni Muni Maha Muni Yesua Om Muni Muni Maha Muni Yesua The Muni Mantra. Words cannot express the sound that emanated from him. It was as though each individual sound wave was an explosion, as clearly defined as a wave on the ocean, and explosive as a firecracker going off an inch from my ear. My body started shaking so hard that I thought an, an earthquake had struck. I don't mean that metaphorically. Dharamsala is an earthquake zone, and I had already experienced several tremors during my residency on the mountain. It was so intense that I had to put my hands on the floor to steady myself. Earth earthquakes can be scary things. Calm yourself, Glenn, I said to myself. Dharamsala tremors usually last only a second or two, but it continued. The Lama sat there chanting, seemingly obvious, ob oblivious to the danger we were in. I wanted to jump and shout an alarm, to scream out words saying that we should all leave the building before it was flattened. I tossed my eyes to the water bolts in the altar, on the altar to check how intense the quake was. To my amazement, the water was utterly still. I looked back at Lama Yeshe. His eyes were on me, like suns blazing across a thousand universes. Well, I thought myself. I thought to myself, so this is what Tsongkhapa meant when it said that on meeting with the Guru, some people clutch at their breast in fear. Two and a half months later, I left Ramsala on pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy places. The first planned stop on my itinerary was Bodhgaya, the place of Buddha's enlightenment. Before leaving, I asked my philosophy teacher, Geshe Navandage, if there was anything in particular that I should do while in Bodhgaya. Geshe replied, the Dalai Lama senior tutor, Kyabya Ling Rinpoche, will be giving some special teaching there. Visit him and ask his advice. Therefore, 
Shortly after arriving, I made my way to the main temple and requested an audience with Kyapyo Rinpoche. The, meet, the meeting was set for the next day. I entered the room, offered the traditional three prostrations, and popped the question. Kyabi Rinpoche picked up his little box with his divination dice, threw the dice a few times and, the, and, then, replayed, and then replied. In a few days, I'm giving tantric initiation into the Yamantaka mandala. If you think you can do a few of the mantras every day, come to it. I didn't know much about Tantra at that point in my spiritual career, but the thought of receiving initiation of direct initiation directly from the Dalai Lama's senior tutor, a Lama legendary for his learning, wisdom and accomplishment, spurred me to take on the commitment. No translation was provided, so we five Westerners who were being permitted to attend the two-day ceremony would be more like sleeping dogs than active participants. This didn't dissuade us. At the end of the first day, Kyabo Rinpoche had a young monk tell us that we should all watch our dreams that night and that, the, that they would be significant. I knew nothing about the Yamantaka Mandali, Mandala until that evening and had never even seen a photograph of it. Yet from the moment of falling asleep until I woke the next morning, I received a most intense and remarkably introductory course, and it strongly and it strongly involved Lama Yesha. The dream began with me sitting in a room reading a book. I remember being in a rather mundane state of mind in the beginning, but by the time I came to the end of the first chapter, my sense of presence had undergone a distinct transformation. At one point, the entire universe suddenly dissolved into light, and there was just me sitting in a chamber of light, my eyes locked in awe to the words on the pages. Each, each passage filled me with a wave of ecstasy, like being tickled within every cell in my body by a feather made of light that swept up and down. I would read a passage and then be so overwhelmed with a sense of profundity, wonder and awe, that the joy would wash over me like a great wave, totally encompassing every aspect of my being. This joy was so intense that I rolled over and over on the dream floor, laughing like a madman and clutching the book to my breast as though my life depended on it. The night seemed like a million eons as I plunged deeper and deeper into the text, alternating between reading and being overcome by an ecstasy that hurled me into a realm of uncontrol uncontrollable laughter and bliss. And again and again, billions of Yamatakas would fly at me like snowflakes, driven by the wild wind, melt into me and fill me with joy. Watch your dreams tonight. <laughs> By early dawn, I had almost completed the book. Somewhere in the process, the bliss and awe became so intense that my entire being seemed to contract into a single impulse 
as so I wear the smallest, most dense speck of substance in existence. This seemed to last for an immeasurable period of time. And then again millions of mandalas dissolved into me, followed by a massive explosion. The only image that conveys the experience is that of having an atom bomb of bliss explode at the center of one's body with no loss of consciousness. My body expanded outward at an incredible speed until it filled the vast extent of space. I had the distinct sense in my dream of having achieved enlightenment. <laughs> that is a dream. It occurred to me that I did not yet know the authorship of this most astonishing book I was reading. There were a few pages left in it, but I could not contain my curiosity and skipped to the colophon of the end. The words stated, composed by Lama Tutnyesha. In the morning I awoke and my dream enlightenment evaporated. Nonetheless, I had the distinct sense that a subtle shift in my center of gravity had taken place. Such was my second encounter with Lama Yesha. For the reminder of the 12 years that I lived in Dharamsala, I met Lama many times. He usually came to town twice a year. Once in the spring to attend the Dalai Lama's annual Losa teachings and initiations, and then again in the autumn in order to make meditation retreat. He always met with the Dalai Lama and the Dalai, Lama two guru, Dalai Lama's two gurus in order to seek, to seek their, advice, their advice on his teaching activities around the world. During the 70s, His Holiness give, gave one public discourse in the main temple in Dharamsala and then a more exclusive <coughs> tantric teaching in his private chapel. His teaching tie his teaching style in the private discourse would be to stop at subtle passages and challenge the senior abbots, tukus and geishas to debate with him on possible interpretations. One year he taught Tsongkhapa's commentary to the Eruka Chakra Samvara Tantra entitled Throwing Light on Hidden, on Hidden Meanings. One particular passage brought him to halt and he called for interpretations. None of the dozen or so attempts that were forthcoming seemed to impress him, and he easily dispensed them with by means of a few debate movements. After half an hour or so, His Holiness chuckled and said, Well, we have the abbots of both Gyumi and Gyutu Tantric Colleges here, and nobody seems to be able to figure out this line. He then suggested that for the moment the interpretation offered by Bakula Rinpoche be accepted, but that everyone should regard the point as unsettled. He then continued with his reading. Lama Yeshe was not an abbot, tuku or geisha, and therefore was not seated in a front row. Nonetheless, he waved to his holiness in order to indicate that he wanted to offer a suggestion on the matter. I think it's just a spelling mistake, he said. <laughs> his holiness asked, well then, where is it? Nobody answered, and so eventually His Holiness commented, If we can't say what the mistake is, then we can't say it's a mistake. We might just as well go back to Bakula's interpretation. He then again began to read on. 
A moment later, Taratulku waved as his holiness. I agree with Lama Yesha, he said. It's a spelling mistake. Taratulku then proceeded to point out how it was the particle ni located between the verb and the main verb and that this should read as me. Me is a negation, thus 100% turning the meaning of the sentence from positive to a negative. His holiness burst into laughter, into laughter looked at Lama Isha and said, Today this yogi from Nepal has put all our greatest scholars to shame. I relate this story because during his life Lama Isha became renowned as a great meditator and mystic. But in scriptural learning he could stand with the best. In 1977 I went to visit Kyapyaling Rinpoche in order to check a few obscure points in a text I was translating. When I arrived at his house, his attendant told me, you can go in, but keep the audience to half an hour, because he has a monk in with him at the moment. I entered Kyapya Rinpoche's room and was delighted to see that the visitor monk was none other than Lama Yeshe. I put a dozen or so questions to Kyapya Rinpoche, and he answered all of them without difficulty. Then one passage came up on which he expressed doubt. He asked Lama Isha for his opinion. Lama at first hesitated to speak, for Kyabir Rinpoche was the Gandan Tripa, the official head of the Gelukpa, and thus the final authority on matters of scriptural interpretation. But Rinpoche have, would have none of it, and began forcing Lama to argue with him on the passage. Then for 15 minutes they both forgot my presence and spun off in a traditional debate on the passage. Then they burst into laughter. Lama looked at me and said, it probably means, and gave me the conclusion. After my audience, I sat and meditated in the field above Rinpoche's house. A couple of hours later, Lama came walking along the path. His health looked terrible, and he leaned heavily on his cane as he moved. He saw me and came over and sat with me. At the time, we were all worried about his health. He had had a bad heart for years, and in 1974, some doctors in America told him that if he didn't have an operation, he would be dead within three months. He had telegrammed Kyabir Trijan Rinpoche for advice, and had been told that it was better for him to rely upon his meditation. I asked him how his health was holding up, he laughed and replied, In 74, the American doctors told me I would be dead in three months. When I went back, back the next year, they looked at me and said, What? You again? You're not dead yet? <laughs> they said the same thing when I visited them in 76, and then again this year. So I don't know. Something seems to be keeping me alive. What is that? Tseva! <laughs> It's true. A few weeks later, I visited him in his meditation hut at Tushita in the mountain above Dharamsala. He was just completing a retreat. When I entered the room, he stood up on his bed, jumped over the table in front of it as nimbly as, nimbly as, would, be, as would a 12-year-old boy, rushed over me and touched my forehead to his. I tell you a secret, baby, he said. 
The more meditation, the more happy. His walking stick was nowhere to be seen. He stuffed my pockets with some Hayagriva healing pills that he had made during his retreat and sent me on my way. My physical encounters with Lama were always magical, enlightened and inspiring. They remained as vivid as though they had occurred only a few hours ago. Each, of, each one of them left me with some lesson in spiritual living. Yet even more re remarkable were his appearance in my dreams. Perhaps the most amazing was a dream that occurred the last day of my first Yamantaka retreat. In my dream I was sitting on my meditation cushion when I heard a sound from the far corner of the room. I looked over and there was Lama. He was dressed in his yellow under robes and looking at me intensely. A black nun entered the room and the two began caressing each other. I was utterly shocked, <laughs> for they both were ordained and thus held vows of celibacy. He glanced over at me again, his eyes burning into me like sunlight concentrated, concentrated through a magnifying glass. Then, without looking away, he slowly pulled the nun toward him and the two sat in sexual union. His gaze never left me for a moment, <laughs> but his face began slowly to transform, becoming ever more passionate and wrathful until he had become Yamantaka. The black nun similarly, similarly transformed, although she wasn't paying any attention to me at all. Both of them were emitting deep growls of laughter. Then he very slowly and intently placed one of his hands to his face, inserted two fingers into one of his eye sockets and ripped out the eyeball. <laughs> the empty socket blazed with light and droplets of blood spilled out from it. The other eye held its gaze intensely, intensely upon me. <laughs> then he reached out and placed the extracted bloody eyeball in my hand. It was hot and melted in my, into my palm. I awoke from the dream, my body covered in perspiration. I looked down at the palm of my right hand. A blister the size of a marble had formed where the eyeball had been placed. The great beings, it is said, live for as long as the material, the material, how do you pronounce this? Meteorious, meteorious energy of the trainees remains strong. When this energy wanes, they pass away in order to give an example of impermanence to their disciples and to inspire the world with a sense of the transmission of responsibility from one generation for, uh, to another. Lama's passing certainly was a combination of the two. In Europe there was a bickering in one of the, his Dharma centers, even squabbling over property rights. That is the beginning of the Katampas. 
the new Kadampas. As the scriptures put it, it was a bad omen, like a vulture in a peacock garden. I was passing, passing through London in late 1983 when the bad omens were at their worst. Those close to Lama were, were extremely worried, but there seemed to be no way to turn the flow of events. Geshe one of Lama's childhood gurus, was approached by one of the Lama's Australian monk disciples for a divination on the matter. Geshe replied, if he lives until the New Year's sunrise, he will live for another 12 years. Geshe recommended that a number of prayers and rituals be done in order to increase merit and purify obstacles. Unfortunately, the monk mentioned this to Lama, who commanded him not to have the rituals done. He passed away shortly before the New Year sunrise. Later, when the Australian monk related the story to Lama Sopa, Lama Sopa wept and said, how I wish you would have spoken to me about Gesherapten's advice and not to Lama. Yet even the darkest clouds have, have their blessings, bringing shade from the hot sun and releasing rain that brings new life and beauty to the planet. I happened to be in Dharamsala some two and a half years after Lama's passing, when a young, when a young Span Spanish boy was first brought to Dharamsala for testing and certification as Lama Yeshua's reincarnation. He was only 14 months old at the time and had just learned to walk. When he was brought to the house of the late Kyabi Ling Rinpoche, where I had witnessed Kyabi Rinpoche and Lama debate over a scriptural passage almost a decade earlier, the child spontaneously prostrated to Rinpoche's throne. On entering the temple room at Tushita, where Lama had frequently received people in audience, the child instantly ran up to the altar and, from among the many images on the altar, picked up the statue that has been Lama's favorite. He then proceeded to walk around the room and touch it to the heads of all who, of all who were present as an act of blessing them, much in the same manner as Lama had frequently touched it to the heads of those who had come to visit him. A traditional Tibetan account of a great master usually concludes by saying something to the effect that the deeds of the mighty bodhisattvas are beyond ordinary comprehension and that what can be put into words is like the drops of water on a blade of grass compared to the waters of, ocean, of the oceans. This certainly was true of the life of Lama Yesha. One could easily write a 1,000-page book on the subject of a single meeting with him. He was born of humble stock and was never recognized as a tulku, but he became a teacher to tulkus. He, completely he completed his Geshe studies. He didn't complete his Geshe studies, but chose quiet meditation on the mountains over the prestige that results from standing for the Geshe exam. He held no exalted position in the Tibetan spiritual hierarchy, but rose to become a Maha Siddha in a garden of Siddhas. His life was an example of the purity, freedom, power and dignity that is arose by application to the Buddha's teachings and he, did, and he dedicated it to the attempt to inspire these qualities within others.
inspired and trained by many of his uh, senior students. Uh, some of the monks I lived with were senior students of Lama Yeshe and, yeah, and I feel very inspired by his writings, uh, particularly his introduction to Tantra, this book. Uh, some of you know that I quote from it quite often. And uh, when you meet uh, students of, uh, uh, of Lama Yeshe, Uh, you can know and you ask him and you ask them about him and then you get this kind of stories yeah. so everyone who has had contact with him can relate this uh, this kind of kind of stories can tell this kind of stories so If you became uh, was Lama Sopa a student of Yeah. You can say it's like his heart disciple or okay. yeah. I mean they 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 founded the FBMT together and they traveled together and um but uh Lama Yisho was was the teacher of, of Lama Sopa. They met in Buxa, which was this uh a refuge camp in the south of India where the Tibetan refugees then uh, uh, were settled first uh, the monks the monks and nuns okay so Let's uh, feel how maybe some of you have seen images of Lama Yeshe. Well, some people feel drawn just by the images. Uh, there's also some YouTube videos uh, where you can uh, you know, connect with his way of teaching and his uh, incredible love, his incredible seva. Using Seva. How do you uh, spell his uh, name? Lama Yeshe. Uh, can someone say this in Danish? Uh, it's Swedish. He, it is said that he was a, 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 a woman in his previous life, uh, an, 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 an abbess of a nearby monastery. So she, he was recognized as the incarnation of this abbess. So he has had a very strong uh, female feminine energy.
Okay, so good night. Take care. Sleep well. Thank you for staying. <laughs> <laughs> and coming to the sessions. And uh, so tomorrow will be the kind of similar structure. Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday we will take the precepts. So tomorrow evening I, I will explain about the Mahayana precepts, which we will take Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. And there will be time for questions tomorrow. So keep your questions in mind. Bring bring them into your dreams.